The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. And uh, we are continuing in our series. It's called Our Story Begins. Um, Today is a part of our 22-week journey through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And as we've said before, I want to make sure we're being clear that the title of the series is Our Story Begins, but the Bible is God's story. But as we've seen thus far, and we'll continue to see as we go, he has made humanity a prominent player in his divine purposes and plans. Uh, We've seen thus far that we all descend from Adam and Eve. Most people think about that and understand that that's true. Uh, We all descend also, though, from this small family that were the sole survivors of the flood, which cleansed the earth of unimaginable wickedness and violence in just a few chapters previous. So in a very real sense, if you think about it, in all that we've studied thus far, if we really do descend from Adam and Eve, we do all really descend from Noah and his family, then All that we're going to see in the scriptures today really indeed is our story. This is our history. So uh, it's important to not see the Bible as some disconnected uh, grouping of moral stories that maybe I can get something out of, but really those who by faith uh, have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, this is is our story. This is how we got to where we are. So thankful for that. So last week we saw Noah and his family. They've come off the ark. Uh, Noah immediately builds an altar and holds a worship service in gratitude to God. It's his first action, offer it. And now we're going to see him declare God, after that worship service, we're going to see God declare order into the new chaotic reality that our ancient ancestors were facing. Okay? So that's, that brings us to Genesis 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 17, okay? A little more than half this chapter, but that's just kind of the way it broke up. So uh, let's read these verses together. We'll see all the Lord has for us. Genesis 9, verse 1. Here we go. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast, I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you. And with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is a sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all successive generations, I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant 
which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Praise God for his word. So what we're going to do is we're going to work in reverse a little bit. So let's look at verses 8 through 17 first, and then we're going to go back and tackle the, the, the beginning of the chapter. Okay, so first off, this does not say for sure that there were no rainbows on earth before this time. Uh, the language seems like it might be hinting at that. So it is possible with the extreme changes to the atmosphere and weather patterns after the flood that it is the case that there wasn't before and now there is. Uh, some people will get real excited about like making a strong claim about that. I don't think totally the Bible's clear. Either what's happening is God is establishing rainbows for the first time as the sign of the covenant, or he is going to use rainbows as the sign of the covenant. Either way, the, the point is that the rainbow is going to be the sign of his covenant, okay? Uh, so we can't be sure about whether rainbows appeared in the sky before the flood, but we do know they existed, Ezekiel 128, I know that sounded a little crazy, but give me a second. Ezekiel 128 and Revelation 4.3, these are both heavenly visions, right? So Ezekiel the prophet and then John at different times, they were give, given the ability to glimpse into the heavenly realm. They had heavenly visions, okay? In Ezekiel, the prophet there, he describes the radiant glory of the Lord to be in appearance like that of a rainbow. And so in his vision, he's seeing something of, of the glory of God, and, and, and the way he sees it, the way it looks to him, the glory of God, the very essence of God's nature, is, is kind of surrounding him in all of the colors of the rainbow. It sounds like something almost too overwhelming to probably be able to describe accurately. That's the way I find, I, I guess I'll be probably when I get to the point where I can be in the presence of the Lord. I, I don't envy uh, prophets and, and then John who had to try to write down in human language what they were seeing, right, in the heavenly realm. That was a, a tall order, and uh, I'm glad I didn't get that job. So uh, that's the way Ezekiel saw it. Uh, in Revelation 4.3, it says, there is a rainbow round about the throne of God, okay? And so whether or not they were in the sky before the flood, we know they've existed eternally, that that's a part of the decorating, if you will, in heaven. And, and why does this matter? God in his great patience with us knows that we need reminders. You can imagine that subsequent generations of people hearing the account of the flood told by their parents and grandparents, and you can imagine them hearing about all the devastation, hearing about uh, the fact that it was the result of sin, looking around, seeing those same types of activities going on, people's hearts being wicked, and they could fear that perhaps a flood would happen again. See, without that vibrant, multicolored reminder of the rainbow, they could have easily forgotten that God promised he would not cleanse the earth with water again. It's also beautiful. Why does all this matter? It's also beautiful that we are able to glimpse some of the beauty of eternity in our current temporal existence, that God kind of pulls back the curtain sometimes and lets us see some of the beauty of eternity. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember this from a couple years ago, but a lot of people laughed at this guy who made a video of the double rainbow. You guys remember this? Uh, if you haven't seen it, it has 45 million hits on YouTube, and all you got to do is go on YouTube and put double rainbow in, and you'll be there 
quickly, uh, so you can, you can check this out, but uh, a lot of people laugh at that guy, and he's just losing his mind, because he's, he's, I think he was in Yosemite is where he uh, filmed this, and there's, there's like a double rainbow over the horizon, and he's just totally geeked out. Um, and, and I will admit to you that the, the brother definitely sounds like, you know, he's out there in the wilderness. I don't know if he got a hold of some mushrooms or some purple berries or what exactly he got into, but just based on his vocal tone, repetition, the things he's saying, there may have been, you know, something going on there, uh, I admit that is probably the case, uh, but I think the fact that he stopped to appreciate the beauty of it is right. So make sure you don't come away with the moral of this story saying, Pastor Vince said, if I get some mushrooms, I'll appreciate God's beauty better. That's not what I said. Do not do that, okay? God's beauty is able to be appreciated stone cold sober. It's better that way, actually. Can I get an amen of anybody who knows the difference? Amen. Whoa. We need another class. That was a lot of amen. That was the loudest amen I've heard all year. Lord Jesus. I know you can get mushrooms in Ohio that much. All right. <laughs> I'll see some of you after the service. Amen. Um, God, God lets some of the same beauty that encircles his throne be shown to us in the here and now as a reminder of his faithfulness and his promises. It's kind of like you'll hear people talk about God kind of letting heaven come down. That's, that's what we're seeing here. But the rainbow was not the last time he did this, right? Because rainbows are beautiful, but they pale in comparison to the beauty of Christ, the Son of God, who Colossians 1.15 says is the image of the invisible God. If we're talking about God pulling back the curtain a little bit and letting us see the beauty of what happens in eternity, what exists eternally, the rainbow was, was a beautiful gift. Amen for that. But it pales in comparison to the beauty of Christ, the image of the invisible God coming, taking on flesh, walking among us, and showing what it is like to have God in your midst. He does this. And here's what's beautiful. You might say, yeah, well, that's great for those that were there in that time. They got to see Christ walk, and some of them got to be on the three-year camping trip, and I get it. We could feel like maybe we got left out of that, but we are not left without that image today, according to the scriptures. Because what we saw in Christ, it's supposed to be carried on in the body of Christ, his church, who are to live as a supernatural community that walks in the beauty of the love of God, constantly reminding believers and non-believers alike that his mercy and power are real and that it is safe to trust Jesus. Jesus said this, the world will know that you're my disciples by your love one for the other. The world's going to know that you belong to me by, to the degree in which you walk in love towards one another. We, what did Jesus say? When he was here, he, he said some stuff. He said, at one place, I'm the light of the world, didn't he? But then he said something elsewhere. He said, you're the light of the world. That can be confusing. Which one is it? Well, guess what? While he was here, he was the light of the world, but he was giving us something, and he was calling us to something to take up that mantle. See, I, I can't tell if you're staring at me because you realize, oh, man, if, I'm, if we're supposed to be the beauty of the image of God in the earth today to the degree that Jesus was when he was here, then maybe we're falling short of that. And to that, I say yes and amen. Let's pray and let's ask God for revival so that that changes. I don't know if it was that or you just thought I went off the theological rails, but I got scriptures for days, okay? We absolutely are supposed to... The, the, what God did in pulling back the curtain of eternity, showing us the beauty of his character and nature in Christ, 
absolutely is supposed to continue today as the body of Christ fulfills her mission. The world should still get to see the beauty and the love, the faithfulness, the mercy of God the Father through the body of Christ, his church. Aside from the body of Christ being a constant reminder of God's faithfulness, both to us within and hopefully to those without, he's also given us the Lord's Supper or communion to remind us of the strength of his promises. You see, it's not just our ancient ancestors who may have had a tendency to forget God's promises and thus needed the rainbow to remind them. We must all know and we must humbly admit that we are prone to forget as well. Sometimes we don't forget the facts about what God has said, but often, if we're honest, we forget to live in light of God's truth when the going gets tough. We may be able to recite the facts if someone quizzed us, but when it comes down to do we really believe it in our hearts to the degree that it affects the way we walk, especially in the midst of difficulty, we too are prone to forgetting. Will you be humble enough to raise your hand and say, sometimes I forget? If you've ever in your whole life struggled with fear or anxiety, you should be among those willing to be humble and honest and say, sometimes I forget that God is faithful. If you've ever ran to disobedience as some alternative route to obeying God because you believed the lie even momentarily that there was going to be more joy there, then you should humbly admit you've forgotten God's promises and the truth of his word. Here's the good news. We do forget. So let's, hopefully we've all, we can all understand that there are times, every time we've sinned, really, every time we've chosen to disobey God, every time even we've been tricked by the forces of darkness into disobeying God, every single time we've forgotten something of the faithfulness, the goodness of his promises, the truth of his word, the beauty of his gospel. And so all of us are in that boat, but, but, the good news is, even when we walk in fear or we walk in disobedience because of our propensity to have gospel amnesia, we can take comfort in knowing what God is looking at. Come on, friends. If you're coming here with me and you've really thought through this and you, you've put yourself in the place of realizing, you know what? There are times I forget. There are times I have not lived as if I believe what this Bible says. There are times for sure that a gospel amnesiac describes me. Then you've also struggled with the lie that God may not be faithful if you're not faithful because that always then comes with it. That's always the work of the enemy to try to bring you into condemnation. When you realize, you're humble enough to realize and to say, yes, I've failed. Absolutely, the enemy doesn't want you to do what God has said in that, which is to confess, repent, receive forgiveness. He wants you to be in condemnation. He wants you to begin to believe the lie that since I'm not being faithful, well then why would God be faithful? You and I both know that sometimes, sometimes we fall into this lie. We believe that his love for us is conditioned upon our performance. Do we not? Am I the only one that's ever felt that way? Somebody else in here has, right? Or you've heard about it. You read about it somewhere, Right? Of course, we all struggle with those beliefs at times, but let me tell you something. God gave us rainbows to remember that he won't flood the earth again. And even if we doubt him, and even if we deserve another flood, his whole throne is surrounded by that colorful reminder of his covenant. Is it not? God gave us communion, gave us communion, 
to remember he is faithful and just to forgive us when we repent and confess our sins. And even when we falter in our faith, and even when we stumble into sin and foolishness, and even when we may deserve to have our redemption revoked, he's got the Holy One, the Lamb of God, sitting at his right in that glorious throne with the wounds in his hands and feet and side, reminding him of his promise to never reject us. Come on now. When I think about all that, I feel like that brother on the YouTube video had it right. He's beside himself in that video. He's shouting, what? He's looking at this double rainbow. He's going, what does this mean? Let me tell you. I'll tell you what it means. It means God is faithful, and he's glorious, and he's mighty, and he's worthy, and you can trust him, and he's good, and he's powerful. It means all those things, man. If you can think about all that and sit there and nod and do nothing more, I'm worried for you, man. At least say amen. Say something. Do you understand that every single time you deserve to have God's redemption pulled from you to his right, right there is the Son of God. Wounds in his hands so that he will never, ever forget that reminder that your sin is covered and that the price has already been paid. Wow. Wow. He's got a rainbow around the throne. And so, listen, I just, if I was God, I'd have to have a pair of glasses, one with rainbow lenses and one with Jesus' blood-colored lenses just to not smite you all and myself. Is that true or not true? We deserve worse judgment than flood, worse judgment than hell. All of us, we are all in that boat. And yet, God graciously gives us reminders of his faithfulness, and yet he surrounds himself as well with these reminders. So even when you're not faithful, friends, he will be. We deserve a flood. We deserve to have our redemption pulled from us. Of course we do, but he's not going to do it. He's made promises and he's going to stick to them. Praise God for that. Whoo! That'll make you you stop and look at a rainbow, won't it? I hope it does. Beautiful. All right, now let's go to verse one. It says, And God blessed Noah... And his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This command is repeated in verse 7. We're going to deal with it there. But it obviously, you're probably hearing the echo of the command given to our first parents after creation in Genesis. So again, this is kind of hitting the restart button. And uh, we, we see this command come down again to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. Okay, Verses 2 and 3 Say, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you, as I gave the green plant. So it seems, based on this, that the relationship between man and animals might have resembled more of what many of you have with pets today than it does with wildlife. It seems like there was maybe not the level of skittishness. You know, it's it, basically everybody was snow white. So you could have just walked out into the woods and, you know, the bunnies are on you, the birds are on you. I mean, it's kind of what it, there wasn't, doesn't seem to be that fear before, but as a part of this, this post-flood world, some have posited that perhaps um, agriculture is not going to grow as vibrantly in a, in a post-flood landscape. And so that's part of why God brings in this, um, kind of allowance for uh, the eating of meat. It doesn't say that clearly. That's kind of all conjecture. But at the end of the day, what we do know is before this, uh, people were eating just 
produce, plants of the field, whatever that was, uh, and now God has said they can eat meat, and, and there's going to now be this fear uh, in animals for humans. And so, of course, we've domesticated some, but I think you also see that um, kind of holding true today. So the, the allowing of animals for food does not mean, however, that the harmonious command through all the scriptures that God's people be good stewards is ignored. And so just because uh, God basically says, you know, okay, animals are on the menu, does not mean, uh, or, or that you hear language earlier on that, that humans have dominion over the earth. Well, God, when God gives dominion, he's also giving responsibility, and that responsibility is stewardship and care. When God gives dominion in any situation or authority in any situation, he's, he's never saying, okay, uh, just, you know, totally destroy this based on your sinful lusts and, and have a great time. Dominion, when authority is given from God, it's always for the care of the thing, for taking care of what you've been given authority over, and so oftentimes to the sacrifice of yourself. But the point here is, uh, we, can't, we don't read this and, and come to the conclusion that, okay, well, man's in charge and everything else should just, you know, fear us. And that means we don't have to care about good stewardship of the environment, uh, you know, good stewardship of the habitats with which animals live and animals themselves. Uh, God absolutely uh, cares about those things and makes it plain that we should as well. So we want to say that. So there's kind of two possible ditches that tend to happen here. Sometimes we've got folks that uh, hear in the beginning of the Bible that man has dominion over the earth, and so they're just like, yeah, you know, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to shoot a bunch of stuff. doesn't matter if I eat it or not. doesn't matter if we take care of anything ecologically. We just, man has dominion. You know, let's tear it all up. Well, that's clearly not the heart of God on the matter. And then on the other side, the other ditch is that you can get to a place where the environment, um, ecology, things of that nature, animal rights, things of that nature can, be, can come to a place of inordinate fixation. And I realize in 2018, America, I'm taking a risk here, but we, we have to identify both potential issues. And so here we see clearly as it goes on to talk about that even, even from a beast that, that kills a man, God's going to have a requirement about the, the blood of that man being shed. There is a clear hierarchy when it comes to the importance of animal and human life. I think we just need to say that. If, you're a, if you believe the Bible, then you're not going to have a problem with that. Now, I realize that sometimes humans are so grotesque in the way they do not steward well God's creation that it, it, it makes us maybe want to overcorrect. But we need to be able to say and understand, if you've got a human life and you've got an animal life, there is no question in the heart and mind of God which one's more important. So how does that play out? Well, I think, you know, Cincinnati is unfortunately famous for a situation that I think illustrates this pretty well, and that's the whole deal with Harambe, right? Uh, that was a tough situation. That was a tragedy. I think that's a fair word to say. I, I don't throw that word around a lot. That was a tragedy. It was a beautiful animal. It's a real bummer that it went down the way it did, but what what there shouldn't be a question of at any point is if, if the human child's life was in danger, whether or not the folks that made the decision they did did the right thing. If you got an animal and a human and you got to choose between a life, that choice should already be made. Okay? And I realize 
There's people within the sound of my voice that aren't happy about what I'm saying. This will go on the internet. There'll be people even angrier about it out there, for sure. I'm, but I don't care, okay? Because all I'm saying is this is what God thinks about it. You have a right in this area, just like you do everywhere else, to think that you know better than God about it. I just wouldn't suggest that. Clearly, we see plain as day in these scriptures Humans and animals are not on the same level in the eyes of God. Now, let me cap this off by saying again, that doesn't mean animals have no value. That doesn't mean we shouldn't take good care of them. That doesn't mean we should be, not be uh, mindful on, on how we do conservation, how we do uh, treatment of animals in all areas. And I fully admit that humans are terrible oftentimes in the way we go about all those things. And reform needs to happen in many areas, and I'm with you on that. But let's just make sure we, we are okay with the idea that, you know, if you got a human baby and you got a beautiful little kitten there and, you know, somebody's got to fall off a cliff or make up whatever your situation is, the, 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 choice, is, the choice is pretty simple, okay? Didn't expect a huge applause on that one. But I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> oh, this is fun. Okay. Let's, let's move to verses four through six. What do you say? Let's leave those behind. I think we said all we needed to say on that. Uh, it says, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it from every man. From every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. The question I want to pull, I, I, I see this as, as the kind of the hinge point of this set of verses. But one question I want to ask and one question I'm hoping you're asking if not, I'm going to put it in your head now, is <laughs> what is all the focus on blood? Why all the blood language? It's, it's very prominent, and it seems to be very important. Um, and so we're going to explore that a little bit. Um, on, on December 15th, 1995, I gathered with God's church for the first time. Uh, I was 10 years old, and I was leaving a very difficult situation, and in some life transition, but I ended up in, in uh, an assembly of God. I don't know if you guys know what the assemblies of God are. It's a denomination, um, and they're pretty cool. I like them. So you got the assemblies of God there in Indianola, Iowa, and I remember two or three things about that experience, gathering with God's people for the first time. The first thing that stands out in my mind is they had carpet in this church building that was like, the only way I can describe it is like neon red. It wasn't just regular red. It was like, it was like bioluminescent blood red. It was the reddest carpet you've ever seen. It was like almost alive. So that was cool. Remember that. And then I remember, I remember at the beginning of the service, they sang the song, "Nothing but the Blood." And I don't know, if, I don't know if you're familiar with that hymn, but it's it's basically the, the title kind of tells you what it's about. And so they're singing nothing but the blood, and I'm 10. I have no, zero, none gospel context, no background uh, being raised among God's people. And so 
I distinctly remember at the age of 10 sitting there thinking, why are they singing about blood? This is super weird. I also remember the pastor gave an altar call at the end of the service, and and I I know that God began uh, a work in my life that day. I don't think I responded to the gospel that day. I don't think I understood it, but, but I responded to something, and God began a work in me that he's still working and has promised to finish. So I'm very thankful for that whole experience. Uh, mentioning the carpet is not to downplay anything that God was doing there that day. It just was really bright and red, so, uh, and I noticed. Um, they sang about blood, and I remember that it, it took me a long time <laughs> to figure out really what that was about. And so we're going we're gonna to dive into this. Um, why were they singing about blood? Why, why here do we have a prohibition against eating blood, right? You got all this, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Big ideas, big concepts, okay? You were just eating plants, now you can eat animals too. That might have came as a shock. Big ideas, big concepts, and it seems like there's this detail that gets worked in there. It's like, not maybe one I would have thought of. Don't eat blood. Actually, don't eat flesh with the lifeblood in it. It's an issue. Don't do that. Of all the things that could be said about it, uh, you know, I kind of wish God would also said at that moment, you know, if you cook this, don't cook it to well done, because that's not the way meat is eaten, you know, eaten by Christians. Do it a little less than well done. It's okay if you're a well done person. We love you. There's room for everybody here. Everybody. Uh, but what's, what's the deal here? So let me read you Leviticus 17, verse 11. It says, For the life of flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. This is a pivotal verse in your Bible. Leviticus 17.11. This ancient statement about life being in the blood has only been verified by modern science. The cell structure of blood is unique in all of the animal kingdom. It is responsible for transporting nutrients, hormonal communication, fighting off disease throughout the body, and, and so much more, and, and very likely many things we're not even quite sure of yet, that all that blood does. If you take any living thing and you remove its blood, it's dead. It has no life. It can have every other part. Think about that. It can have every other part, every organ still in place, and without blood, it's just a lifeless corpse. And friends, When we're talking about this idea of why does blood show up here so prominently, why does it seem like what would be a small detail makes this set of really big ideas and commands, and here's the reality. The Bible is a bloody book. It's a very bloody book, and this is not a mistake. This emphasis on blood here in Genesis 9, it it echoes throughout the pages of Scripture. The Bible is soaked in the crimson fluid that allows natural life to exist. Here at Love City, we often talk about the crimson thread of the gospel that is running through all of the scriptures. Basically, what we're saying is anytime you open anywhere in this book, if you know how to look and you humbly submit yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to help you see it, that the the gospel and the crimson thread of the gospel is woven throughout the entire thing. That's what the whole Bible's about. And, and we'll use that terminology, but it is, it is just as accurate, maybe more so, to talk of the living word of God as it refers to itself as living, to refer to it as having arteries and veins of its own. 
The blood flows all the way in and throughout this book. It's, it's all through it. The word is alive and powerful precisely because it is filled with and focused upon blood. Let me show you, let me show you these veins and arteries. Let me show you how much blood is in this book, and this will not be exhaustive. Blood was shed when God made animal skins to cover Adam and Eve in their sin, Genesis 3, right? You remember that? What did they try? They tried to use fig leaves, itchy, poison ivy-like, nasty fig leaves to try to cover their sin. God comes, sheds blood, kills an animal, covers them in animal skin. Blood is shed there. Abel's blood cried from the ground when Cain killed him. Blood was spilled when Noah sacrificed upon the altar after the flood. We just saw that last week. Blood flowed when Abraham entered into a covenant of circumcision with God. It was blood over the doorposts of the Israelites that saved them from the death angel in Egypt. Blood flowed like rivers from the altars of both the tabernacle and the temple. More blood than could be measured was spilled in the battles over the promised land. The blood of the prophets who warned of God's judgment stained the ground in their day. But why? Why all this blood? Why is it all the way in and through our scriptures? Blood is gory and it's gross. Why is there such an emphasis on it here? Because, dear friends, God wants us to see the precious nature of blood, that it is the very source of of natural life. And it is only through the shedding of precious blood that we will taste eternal life. All the blood in the Bible is pointing us to and reminding us of the blood of Jesus. And this is why we sing songs like nothing but the blood. That is why we would gather like this and we would sing entire songs like nothing but the blood. I'm assuming most people that have been around God's people any amount of time have probably sang this hymn before, but maybe somebody hasn't heard it, so this is for you, but also for those of you that have sang it thousands, maybe thousands of times, I want you to listen to it again in the context of what we're talking about and what we're saying is true about the Bible. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Naught of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of of Jesus. Now, by this, I'll overcome nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, by this, I'll reach my home, nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
Glory, glory, this I sing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. All my praise for this I bring, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Come on now. Is that true or is that true? Come on. It is about the blood of Jesus. It is the thing that we hope in. We all are dead in sin and lost. And it is the way we will overcome. It is the way we will come home. The blood of Jesus alone has the power to take dead sinners and make them alive in Christ. It's his blood that purchased us away from the taskmaster of sin and death. And it is his blood in which all of our peace and joy and hope will be found, not only in this life, but for eternity. So I am glad and I will proudly sing songs about this beautiful blood. And I will not shrink away from the fact that this book is soaked in that crimson fluid. The blood of Christ, it drips from every page. And it is rightly so. Because every one of the sacrifices, every single part of the narrative, all that we're reading right now, it's all leading up to one thing. And that's our Savior stripped naked, beaten, and crucified on the cross and his holy blood flowing down it. Praise God for the blood of Jesus. Amen. So what then do we do? How do we respond to the reality that the scriptures are indeed filled with its own veins and arteries, that the blood of Christ flows through all of it? There is blood all over these pages. What do we do? Do we run from it? Do we shrink from it? Do we try to, do we try to clean it up when we're telling people about it? No. No. The Bible's, the Bible's messy on purpose. It, do, it doesn't, man, it doesn't, it doesn't airbrush anything. It's messy. Because life is and sin is. <laughs> this is real. It's part of why I believe it. So what do we do? How do we respond? The first thing we do is we rejoice. We rejoice in the fact that the Bible is a bloody book. Here's something very interesting that's said here in Genesis 9. It says, uh, Surely I will require your life, but from every beast I will require it. From every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. From the image of God he made man. What's he saying here? He's saying life for a life. That's the standard. Here's what we need to understand. Our sin leads to death. Every one of us has dealt death through our sin. If, if nothing else, it was self-death. If nothing else, we have shed our own blood with our own sin, and we are accountable for that. We should all pay the penalty. And here's what we also need to understand. This covenant still stands. Life for a life still applies. So how have we gotten out of it? Jesus gave his life instead. Life for a life still happened. But God came in and said, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, he can step in and be the substitute. Every one of you, if justice was being dealt all by itself, your life would be required of you by God Almighty. Blood for blood, life for life. But Jesus stepped in. He said, I know they're guilty, and I know they deserve to be taken out. Take me instead. That's the gospel, friends. That's the truth we rejoice in. And if you can't rejoice in that, then, then there's one of two issues. Either A, you have yet to understand the depth of your spiritual bankruptcy. 
And I agree with Charles Spurgeon when he said that it, true regeneration, true salvation can only come after you have realized your spiritual bankruptcy. See, that's the problem with preaching a half gospel. That's the problem with preaching some kind of candy-coated, Jesus-loves-everybody type message, because that's not what the Bible teaches. Does God love everybody? Absolutely. Did Jesus die for us while we were sinners? Yes, that's the next point. But let me tell you something right now. None of us deserves it. And all of us, aside from Christ, are in death and hopeless. And without his blood being shed on our behalf, dear friends, that's where we'd find ourselves. Forever. Under God's judgment. And rightly so. Each of us deserves the death penalty laid out in this covenant. The next time you're feeling entitled, the next time you're feeling like God hasn't quite shown up on your timetable, I want you to please, dear friend, just come back to Genesis 9 and say, hold on a minute, let me remind myself of what I actually deserve. And realize that what I've gotten is far better. <laughs> to even be offered the possibility of trusting Christ by faith and being saved from the eternity that I've earned for myself. Praise God. So we rejoice in the bloody nature of the scriptures. Romans 5a, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God. The second thing we do, so we rejoice in it. The second thing we do is we participate. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. You see the same thing I'm saying with the fact that these scriptures, they got, it's got arteries and veins running through it, the blood of the Savior. It's, it's all through these pages in the same way. When Paul gives us the analogy of the body of Christ that that there's hands and there's feet, and that every single person that has come to faith in Christ is a part of that body. See, we've got, we've got veins and arteries connecting us too. The blood of Christ is what flows between us and, and binds us together. And so what should happen when that's true? Well, there should be a unity according to John 17 and Jesus' high priestly prayer, prayer part, of, part of what he was hoping for, part of what he was looking forward to as a result of his finished work upon the cross was that the people of God would be able to enjoy such unity that it could be compared to the unity that Jesus enjoyed with the Father himself. That's, that was part of the heart of the Master. It's part of the last things he was praying before he goes to face crucifixion. So when the blood of Christ binds and it's flowing through this body that he's given us of believers, each with an individual part, but, but a collective that's supposed to be on a mission, there's a unity. There is love that cannot be shaken or broken. Does that mean there's never conflict? No, absolutely it does not mean that. That means when there's conflict, the Bible shows us how to deal with it. We think in terms of covenant. We don't bail on one another. When we hit points of contention or disagreement or perspective misalignment, all of which are absolutely going to happen because of the human experience, because we are all still sinners being sanctified, we have not reached perfection. There are going to be issues. There are going to be problems. And when those arise, those are opportunities for us to live out the beautiful message of the flowing blood of Christ, which is that the gospel has saved us and allows us then to be forgiving of others because we have been forgiven of so much that it's, there's this amazing thing that happens. No longer do we have to hold grudges. No longer do we have to 
just think about how I feel about it. We get to have this beautiful experience where we get to lay down our preferences in that given moment. We get to not have a nasty attitude. We get to experience the freedom of not being chained to our selfishness and walk in such a way that shows others the beauty of Christ within the body and lets those that have yet to come to know Christ see, wow, that community interacts with one another, loves one another, walks in a unity that I crave because I've never found it. That's the goal. That's what it's supposed to look like. And you might say, well, I've experienced it not go that way a lot of times. Hey, me too. Let's start a club. We'll get patches, okay? It'll be fun. Of course, we don't see that happen perfectly, but we should at least set the mark, hold ourselves accountable to that mark instead of, you know... (laughs) Noticing everybody else that doesn't do it so well. And if everyone would do that, right? If we would judge ourselves, we'd not need to be judged. That's a scripture. Okay. Here's the other thing that happens though, right? When we let contention, when we let division, uh, all the devices of the enemy, when we let these things in, what happens is that those connecting arteries and veins that are supposed to be bringing life and nutrients throughout the body. Uh, Jesus used another example. He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, and apart from me, you can do nothing. I think that's interesting because people, people get this idea that like solo Christianity is, is so much cooler and, and uh, the church is organized religion and blech, ugh, you know, organization, that's gross, right? So they get these like real Lone Ranger type um, mentalities and, it's, and we live in the West and so that's very much glorified. We like cowboys on horses that do it in their own strength. They don't need anybody's help and they got a six shooter and they take out the whole town of bad guys. We really like that, right? We want to be that guy. But that's not the picture painted of what God has called us to. Uh, If Jesus is the vine connected to the ground, pulling the nutrients from the ground, and we're the branches, then that means we are connected to him, but we're also connected to each other. The body of Christ, if, if the blood of Christ is flowing in and through the veins and arteries of this body, then what happens when either the body of Christ cuts a finger off or a finger cuts itself off? Okay, analogies all break down. I don't know how that could happen, but... Let's just say it can, you know, like those lizard tails, just disconnect. What do we have then, right? We, we, we just, if I just, you know, took my knife out right now and index finger off because I'm like, you know what? People aren't responding to sermons enough and I'm going to do an object lesson that gets their attention. So today's the day, right? And I just, whack, take the index finger off right now. What would happen? <laughs> you guys are like, oh God, no, <laughs> he's not going to do that, is he? No, we haven't reached that point. Uh, but amen more because we're getting there. So no, I'm just kidding. But so I hack the index finger off and it's, it's laying there on the table. What do we have? We got a dead finger, man, that now is not going to be able to work in the function for which it was created for sure. And now we've got a hand that's going to be working at a handicap. And, and absolutely God intended through the Apostle Paul to make the analogy all the way to go to that point, right? When you're disconnected from the body of Christ, you're not the blood of Christ, those veins and arteries, man, it's... It's not functioning as it should. Are you saying if you're not a part of the church, you can't be a Christian? Listen, the thief on the cross didn't get a chance to jump down, get baptized, and become a member of First Baptist Church Jerusalem, okay? So I get that, and that's true. But we're, again, I, I said this last week, like, can we quit asking questions like, hey, what's the absolute bare minimum I need to do to, like, eke into the, under the gates of heaven? Can we just stop that? Because that is... 
Because Romans 12, the language is, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. If you give something in a sacrifice, go back to altars and burning animals for sacrifice. Like once you put that thing up there, what, you, you, you can't half do that. Like once you give it, it's gaved, right? <laughs> oh man, he's losing his English and everything. I know. Once you've given it, it's done, man. That thing's done, and it now has one purpose, to be a sacrifice. What's the language saying in Romans 12? Be a living sacrifice. For us to say, well, what's, what's the bare minimum I got? That's, uh, that, so if that's your question, then let me just say this. I love you so much. But if that is the way you operate, you very well may not be a Christian. Because when you encounter the love of God, when, you, when the blood of Christ really comes and sets you free from selfishness and death and, and all that comes with being disconnected from God. That's, that's not the way we think anymore. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't jive with the reality of going from darkness to light and from death to life. And so I'm not trying to get anybody to doubt their salvation. I'm just saying, dear friends, can we please not settle for the lowest denominator and just think that, uh, well, 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 what's the bare minimum? That's, it's, that's just, it's gross to think that way in light of what the gospel's teaching that God has done for us. Okay, so there's that. So we participate. We are, we are a part of the body of Christ. Okay, third thing is we preach it. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Thanks, man. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Here's something I want to show you. I told you we would deal with this at the end. This start, verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 7, this is the bookend of this portion of God making this covenant with them. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. You think he wanted them to be fruitful and multiply? He said it twice, right? He said a lot of things twice, actually, in this set of verses. He really wanted to make his point. But he says it twice. He starts with that, and then verse 7, he reiterates it, okay? And, and, and so how does that tie? Okay, so what's the tie-in with Matthew 28? And go, therefore, and make disciples. Here's, here's, here's the tie-in. It says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. This says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Populate the earth down below abundantly and multiply in it. Friends, there's echoes all through this thing. It all ties together. Our mission has not really changed from the one Adam and Eve were given or that Noah was given. Here's the difference. The only difference is we aren't populating anymore by natural birth, but by new birth. We take up the same mantle. We are continuing the same call. The covenants all go together. We, you, People think, well, God made this covenant, and then he totally X that one. No, man, they all build upon each other. It's all this, God's will has been the same thing, to have a bunch of people with him for eternity. And so what was required right now, at that point, with Adam and Eve, it was required, we, we got a natural birth, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Uh, every young man's favorite verse, probably. Be fruitful and multiply, right? And then it comes up again. The earth's been wiped out because of a flood. We got a small family here. Be fruitful and multiply. But we get to time of Christ, we get to him saying to his disciples what, what he wants you to do. What is he really saying? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. You see, we're really talking about the same thing. 
It's really multiplication. The whole thing has always been the same. God has had one goal from the beginning. Peter nailed it when he said, God's not slow as some count slowness. He's patient, willing that none should perish. God has one thing on his mind. He's had one thing he was working this whole time. This is the plan. This is why the Bible is soaked in blood, because blood, the life in the blood was required to get the end goal, the end goal being us and him forever. And that, if we rejoice and we participate, then what we're going to do is we're going to be preaching. We're going to be preaching that there is life and hope in the blood of Christ, that no person is so bad or so wicked, that no person has rebelled so far that God cannot reach them and that the blood of Christ cannot save them. We preach it. We answer the call to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. If we rejoice and we are participating in all that the Bible is calling us to, then we're going to be preaching this, this same beautiful message that has it's been there from the beginning. God loves you, God wants you, and he will do what is necessary to have you. And see, a lot of people, man, Again, there's, there's two kinds of people you're going to meet. There's people that are so broken in their understanding of themselves that they, they will really, really struggle to think that God wants them. And you're going to have to minister to them by the power of the Holy Spirit in a certain way. But you're going to have people on the other end of the spectrum that they are so confident of how awesome they are that they're going to just say, yeah, of course God loves me. Why wouldn't he? And you're going to have to minister to them by the power of the Spirit in a different way. And that's why we can't just go out here into the world, into our spheres of influence, into the places where we work and, and, and our families and all the places where we're going to share the gospel. We can't just go out there with a bunch of canned answers and shoot them at people. That's why we have to walk by the power of the Spirit every single day because you don't know who you're going to meet, how they're going to be struggling, what kind of foolishness they might believe, and you're going to need God's help in every one of these situations. But it starts with a desire and a care about the fact that there's a bunch of people that don't know the blood of Christ is for them. It's where it starts. And so if that's you today, and, and, and you know, you know what? I see that that guy's real excited about it. And I heard maybe some other people around me were excited about it, but I don't know that I'm really that excited about getting in on this mission of making disciples. Then where I want you to start, dear friend, is to repent for your apathy and to ask God to pour into you a desire to be a part of what he is doing in the earth because that's his desire for you and it is the greatest privilege you will ever happen upon to be involved in what God is doing, to be able to take the application of his precious blood and to spread it and to give it, to share it freely. No one will ever be a part of anything greater than that. Hallelujah. We're still populating. We're still being fruitful and multiplying. We're just doing it by the new birth now. Amen. May we be a people who remember God's faithfulness. May we be a people who see the bloodiness of the Bible and rejoice, participate, and preach it instead of running away. And may all this be true of us for the glory of God and the good of his people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for these scriptures. We thank you for the book of Genesis. Thank you for bringing us into this series. God, thank you for all that you've shown us. Thank you for weaving this beautiful truth into our hearts that uh, this is our story, that, God, we are a part of this, that this is our lineage. Lord, help us to learn all that you have for us in this. God, but help us please, Lord, today especially, every time we gather like this, but today especially, please help us, Lord, 
Not to be hearers of the word uh, only, but to be doers as well. Lord, may we, may we see the interconnectedness of your scriptures. May we, be left, may we be left in awe of your story and all that you're doing. And, and, and may we respond to the call that it puts upon us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your blood is sufficient and more so. Thank you that the Bible is not a book that whitewashes anything. It doesn't airbrush anything. Thank you that there is perfect, beautiful, and redemptive blood coursing through the pages of the scriptures. Lord, help us to not shy away from that, but to rejoice in it. Thank you. Thank you that even though each of our life should have been demanded of us, that Jesus was able to step in, that he is the eternal lamb slain before the foundations of the world. Thank you, Lord. Please help us to put our hope in the gospel. Please help us to remember, Lord, you've given us so many ways to help us remember. You've given us rainbows and communion. You've given us one another, these beautiful reminders of your faithfulness and your power, your willingness to be patient with us, God. Please help us to remember these things, and and not just intellectually, but God, help us to remember them so deeply that it affects the way that we live. We love you, Lord. You are worthy of all of our devotion. You are holy and perfect, magnificent and beautiful. Thank you that you allow us to behold even glimpses of your glory. We worship you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.